2: and welcome back to New Books in National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Mark Ham and Ramon Spy about their new book, The Age of Lone Wolf Terrorism. Mark and Ramon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a professor of criminology at
0: Indiana State University um, and have been in the field of terrorism research um, since the late 80s when I started to... Um, Look at the, the rise of these skinhead groups um, across the country. And from there I went into um, the militia movement and I, ended up, I wrote two books on the Oklahoma City bombing, and all of this happened before 9/11. So then since 9/11, um, my scope is broadened to include you know jihadi terrorism, um, and uh, then eventually uh, into the move uh, with uh, Ramon on lone wolf terrorism. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of a snapshot of my career.
2: Great. Ramon, could you tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, quite a different career trajectory in, in, in some respects. Uh, I'm currently a professor of sociology at uh, Victoria University in Australia and the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, and I kind of came to to uh, I have a number of sort of areas of research but but one of the prominent ones is is, is study on terrorism violent extremism uh, and particularly uh, from sort of the mid 2000s uh, so quite a later stage uh, uh, commencing research particularly for a major project uh, funded by the European Commission uh, and uh, one particular component of that study uh, related to, to this notion of long wolf terrorism and that kind of initially triggered my interest and it, it's basically from there uh, where i wrote a report that was re- reasonably well received uh, that i sort of started working on some further projects in this area which culminated in in my 2012 book and subsequently uh, as mark mentioned uh, our collaboration on, on this uh, uh, this recent project
2: great could you tell us about how this book came came into being
0: um yeah I can uh, I can address that. Um it was in 2011 um the National Institute of Justice in the US Department of Justice issued a call for grants uh, a call for proposals for a series of uh, projects on uh, domestic radicalization. And um I had been since I'd uh, back uh, beginning in the uh the the late 70s I I come to the conclusion in one book that Timothy McVeigh was a lone wolf and um I began to doubt that uh, almost immediately after the book was published and I began to look deeper into the Oklahoma City bombing and determine that you know that was really a stretch um that McVeigh was assisted by at least uh, Terry Nichols and perhaps others, and that this was a broader conspiracy, which you know sort of brought me full circle to the question: Well, then, what is a lone wolf terrorist? And um, when you searched the internet uh, for on this topic, uh, this one report kept coming up, <laughs> and it came out of the Netherlands, but there was there was no name attached to it. And, but it was a fascinating report, and I thought, well, I'm going to use this report as the basis to, uh, for uh, the Institute of Justice project, but i got to find out who authored this report. and So I, I kept digging and digging, and finally I found that it was Ramon, and uh, we'd never met. And so I said, you know, the, what attracted me to Ramon's work was his clarity of thinking that here was somebody who wasn't trying to impress you with his theoretical knowledge or impress you with all sort of whiz-bang statistics. But what he was doing was he was being very methodical in his use of terms. And, um, and I was very impressed with, with that clarity of thinking. And so I contacted Ramon. I said, you, you, I, I'm typically a lone wolf myself. You know, I hardly I ever collaborate with somebody. But this was Ramon had done such a fine job with that, I said, you know, I'm going to throw in with this guy if he wants to, and uh, thankfully he was he was uh, interested in doing that, and so we put together this project uh, for the National Institute of Justice, and we were funded for it, and then so that was uh, 2011, 2012, uh, all the way through 2015 when we completed that project. And then from there, we took off and we summarized everything in this book that became The Age of Lone Wolf Terrorism. So that is how uh, the collaboration came about. Um, and to this day, uh, I, there are only a handful, maybe five, you can count on one hand, the number of, of academic books that have been written on this topic. And, and so, um, you know, that's to the extent, to the, the, what our contribution, I think, is that we come up here with this clearly identified pathway or model for understanding the radicalization of individuals who end up uh, committing terrorism on their own.
2: So from time to time, we see some disagreement about the term lone wolf come up in articles and journals. Can you talk about what the term means and how you use it?
1: Sure. Now, you're, you're absolutely right. So it's, it's quite a contested term, not just among sort of scholars, but also, for example, in law, law enforcement community, right? So one of the criticisms of it might be that it, for example, glamorizes this type of criminal activity. Uh, and also uh, one might say, well, how useful is a metaphor like that when, you know, when we're looking at, for example, at wolf biology and when we're comparing it to human behavior, uh, so there's a number of these these critiques which we uh, Mike and I've discussed at length, uh, and uh, I think the way we use it in this book. So let me start by just just explain how we apply it. Is to really focus on uh, so at at a kind of more practical level at this this no this sense of operational independence. So these are individuals that are not acting as part of, as members of, or uh, 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 being directed by an extremist group or cell or, 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 or network. Uh, and in that sense, they kind of, uh, choose their own targets. They, uh, they don't radicalize in isolation. So I'll, I'll explain that in a minute, what I mean by that. Uh, but basically they're kind of operating on their own and in a way also they, uh, conceive themselves as such. So as, as soldiers, as warriors for a particular cause, and they, in that process, they seek to become historical figures uh, uh, in, through, through their violent acts, actually individuals who potentially change the course of history. So there's, there's a quite sort of strong sense of, of individual sort of uh, uh, honor, purpose, meaning involved in that. Uh, yeah, what we see in the process, obviously, that, that that's one of the critiques saying, well, you know, uh, and Mark raised this in his example of Timothy McVeigh. How alone are many of these individuals? Well, indeed, a lone wolf doesn't operate in a social or political vacuum, right? So, and and we'll talk about that later, but in the book we we make a big case for hey, you know, uh, we need to still look at how these individuals interact with their broader uh, uh, social environments to really understand how this, for example, this radicalization process uh, uh, works. And so also when we think about prevention strategies, we still need to think about, for example, about the fact that many of these lone wolves actually love to talk, and they probably talk too much because they want to seek renown for their cases, and they they like to communicate their violent intentions to the outside world. Uh, otherwise, uh, uh, the act is, in a sense, meaningless, right? Uh, and so, uh, I take those critiques. Uh, so personally, I, I understand where they're coming from. But a, I would say, there's absolutely no empirical evidence. Uh, that this term, terminology has ever glamorized any of these actors, if, if Mark can talk about this later, when we talk about a direct contact with these individuals, uh, they didn't even necessarily frame themselves in terms of this lone wolf uh, using that exact terminology at all. Uh, and also that there are actually some interesting parallels, for example, with lone wolves, how they operate sort of in, in nature, and particularly how many of these individuals over time have sought – to belong to a group, uh, either uh, you know a, a physical group or a, a virtual community online, for example. And often they are they are they are sort of drifters. So they've sort of sense of belonging in groups, but they've never quite uh, found it. They never really uh, 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 stick kind of socially or you know in a group. Or they felt the group uh, was not extreme enough. Was a lot of talk but no action. And, and so for a number, or oh, the group felt that these were. Undisciplined characters who were a kind of well, a liability. So, for a number of reasons, we see kind of dynamics that we actually also see in, 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 <laughs> in fact, in, in lone wolves who, who seek to belong to packs, but for, for, for a variety of reasons may drift in and out of packs over time, but also always looking for that sense of kind of belonging and, and, and purpose. So, Mark might want to add to that, but this is a few initial sort of my thinking yeah. around this kind of question. Yeah, I would
0: only add one thing is that. Uh, you're right in identifying these critiques of uh, the term lone wolf terrorism. But many times what the critics overlook there is that it wasn't us, it wasn't academics who who designed, who initiated the use of this term. It was indeed the FBI. And the FBI uh, drew that term from a small uh, group of white supremacists uh, operating during the Reagan administration. And they use that term to identify this standalone terrorist, this lone actor terrorist. And they continue to use that uh, term up to, to today. President Obama used that term repeatedly. So this is not a uh, pie-in-the-sky theoretical academic term. Indeed, it's just the opposite. It's seen as a, as a valid analytical tool by practitioners. And so the the critics must first deal with that issue when they when they begin to uh, to attack the those of, those of us who use uh, this term
2: great, thank you so the book um, and Ramon, you hinted to this a little bit uh, some of the themes the the book lays out the model of radicalization in the different stages. Could you walk us through the radicalization model of lone wolf terrorism
0: um okay i'll I'll take that first, and Ramon can uh, uh, add to it. Uh, all right. There are five phases to this model, and I'll and I'll go through them uh, one at a time. Um, the first is that the lone wolf. First of all, let me tell you how we got to this. We we got to this, but we, we this we, this is empirically based. In other words, we identified 123 lone wolf terrorists between 1940 and mid to 2016, and we analyzed these uh, 123 uh, lone wolves across 21 different variables. So we're coming up with, uh, in the neighborhood of uh, 2,500, original data points. Now, I say all that to to make the point is that this is not a theoretical model. It is not abstract. It has been empirically verified. And so let me now state what the five steps are. One, the lone wolves tend to mix uh, personal vendettas with a political grievance. All right, so they have a personal frustration and a political frustration that tend to get melded together. Uh, two is that these individuals tend to have some affinity with uh, with an either an extremist group or an online sympath- sympathizer. Now, what affinity means is that there is some sort of 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 nuanced of uh, liking of these other groups. You know, they they find something in these groups that they they want to model themselves after, or they find something appealing about these groups. Now that is in that typically in the post-9/11 era uh, it does not mean face-to-face contact, right? So this is very important. So they they are being influenced through the internet through virtual means. So therefore, this is a, this is a fundamental change in the way uh, radicalization occurred as opposed to the uh, pre-internet era. The third is, third step in the model is an enabler. Now, this is an individual who uh, has attracted widespread media attention because of his or her typically is his um, political violence, his terrorism, his extreme beliefs. And people, uh, lone wolves tend to uh, have a great deal of empathy for these people and look upon them as uh, as role models of a sort. Um, and they uh, t- typically are people who are no longer living. And I'll just name uh, the, probably from among white supremacists to this day around the world, 60 years after his death, Adolf Hitler is still uh, in such an influential figure, iconic figure, that he inspires, through his example, acts of terrorism by neo-Nazis. On the other side of the jihadist side of the column, both Anwar al awlaki and Osama bin Laden, both dead for a number of years now, they continue to inspire jihadists. So these are enablers, these are people who inspire by example. The fourth uh, step is a broadcasting of intent. As Ramon mentioned, these people they, they seek renown for their beliefs, they talk too much about their beliefs. And a matter of fact, we use a term in the book oversharing. sharing These guys tend to—they want to be known for their beliefs, and, and many times they want people to know that what they're going to do. So this is a deep psychological process dealing with identity and, and dealing with a, a sense of renown for um, for their beliefs. The fourth, the final, the fifth is a triggering event. These triggering events can either be personal, political, or co- some combination of the two. Um, we find this is the political are, are uh, just as important as the personal. The, the political events tend to be, for example, when, the, um, when ISIS uh, released a video recording calling for acts of violence against the West during Ramadan 2016, this became an event that it, that, that triggered Omar Mateen's uh, assault on the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. Uh, Mateen was a was a lone wolf in waiting. Uh, he and th- but he needed something to spark it, a catalyst to set it off. And so that was what the triggering event was for Mateen. So in other words, in all 123 of these cases, we see every element there uh, that I've mentioned uh, uh, showing up in the the majority of cases. Um, And then the final, then this this leads to terrorism. Now, uh, in about 30% of the cases, uh, we see a copycat effect. So that whole cycle begins all over again. Two other comments about the model. One, it's not necessarily linear. In other words, there's not a lockstep model where people have to go through each successive phase to become a terrorist. Uh, It is more of a heuristic or learning device so that people can begin to understand, get an appreciation for the specific behavior, and this is the key word in our in our approach. These are behavioral indicators, something you can witness, something you can see. We are not all apathetic bystanders watching these things go by. And so you can see these things and you can act on them. And we provide uh, some examples in the book where lone wolf attacks have indeed been stopped because of bystanders, parents, teachers. Uh, gun store clerks uh, have, re- have reacted to some of these characteristics. So um, uh, I think that's, I'll leave it at that. That That's a summary of the what we call the radicalization model of lone wolf terrorism.
2: Thank you. The The data that you use to form the model is frequently grouped by pre-9-11 and post-9-11 events. How did dividing the data inform your analysis?
1: Yeah, I think that I think a, a key point there is, uh, as, as Mark mentioned, right. So we're covering a, a, a very large uh, uh, period, so 1940 uh, uh, to 2016, and so with what we tr- what we were interested in, and what are some of the, the developments, both continuities and changes over time. What are some of the patterns? Where do we see changes, and, and one of the, the prominent changes, for example, is, is with regard to targets, and particularly the increasing targeting of, of military personnel and, and, and law enforcement, uh, but, but also look at some of the some continuities. And so obviously there's different ways to do it. So uh, we look in the book in, 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 in a number of instances, uh, we do that more, for example, by decade, or we, we do it by looking at some, some of the critical case studies, really, the, the, well, what we call the paradigmatic case studies, that really exemplify sometimes a shift or discontinuity in, in, in some of the key trends. Uh, but what we also found is, is to be quite useful is to, is to, to look sort of at, at pre and post 9-11 uh, and, and look at, uh, uh, you know, what are some of the key features, similarities, patterns of long-move terrorism before and after. And uh, I think there are strengths and weaknesses to that. And I think it, it helps us to actually uh, make visible some of the more, the, the more subtle changes uh, 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 that have occurred over time. Uh, yet, obviously, those changes don't necessarily always neatly align with the pre- and post-911. So, for example, I'm thinking, uh, and we, 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 we do this explicitly in the book, we also highlight some other dates, such as particularly, for example, the election of, of, of former President uh, Barack Obama as a, as a key point, particularly in where we start seeing some uh, uh, shifts in patterns of global extremism among, for example, anti-government and right-wing extremists. So. Uh, i think it's always useful to to look at uh, uh particular well dates times time periods uh in order to be able to identify continuities and changes but at the same time i think there there are there are more than just a pre and post 911 uh uh mark you you want to add to that uh, yeah I, I, we we could do a whole hour
0: on this um on a methodological level um if in order to determine whether things have changed longitudinally over time You need some demarcation, (laughs) you know. In experimental research terms, you need a pre and a post uh, test, uh, if you will. And so, by splitting the the uh, the data between a pre and post 9/11 era, we have effectively uh, divided, provided the demarcation, so that we can make comparisons. In other words, you can't say that uh, lone wolf terrorism is is changing in any substantive way without having such a timeline. And so strictly on a methodological level, a science, social scientific level, it makes a lot of sense to do that. Um, This allows you to make discoveries. uh, For example, uh, we, you know, we found five women of the pre 9-11 era uh, who were lone wolf terrorists. All of them were assassins. Uh, We have seen none in the post 9-11. Why are there no women assassins anymore? Who who come out of this lone wolf terrorism? Back why why is that? This is an interesting question, sociologically, criminologically, uh, an issue for women's uh, studies. So this is just one finding that we were able to discover by making that demarcation, by making that drawing that line and saying and say, okay, what have what has happened over time
2: yeah another finding with that demarcation came up in the radicalization chapter, and let's just say the bar graph is very telling about the rise of the internet and its impact. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit uh,
0: yes uh, well the uh you know i mean i I mean this is you don't want to get tautological here but the 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 fact that the, the internet wasn't around. Uh, prior to 9-11 so that there were other ways, other methods by which these individuals uh, developed uh, affinity uh, for extremist causes. And they typically did that uh, through, uh, in the earlier years, through um, their, they'd either belong to an extremist group like the Ku Klux Klan And oftentimes didn't find the Klan violent enough or extreme enough. And so they, they, like a a wolf does, a lone wolf does, he splits from the pack and goes out on his own and becomes an independent operator. Um, Now, along comes uh, the Internet and the rise of uh, chat rooms and the rise of uh, propaganda online, bomb-making material online, purchasing firearms online, the whole bit. And uh, the face of radicalization begins to change. And so, after 9/11, uh, the majority of the radicalization, the locus or place of radicalization, uh, was no longer the extremist group, but was now online. And this radicalization came through um, uh, through an affinity between uh, anonymous online sympathizers. Now, we've we've got people here who were radicalized uh, to go off to Syria to fight uh, with ISIS in their jihad, and they had done so uh, through communicating online with people who had never set foot in Syria. All they were doing was they were confirming uh, and pushing and inspiring and uh, promoting uh, this jihad, even though they had no direct experience with it. So that's an important post-9-11 development that... Uh, every, I mean, uh, every think tank on terrorism, every domestic terrorism, international terrorism uh, bureaucracy in Washington has dealt with um, and continues to deal with. Millions of dollars have been spent on trying to figure out how to do counter-radicalization online. Matter of fact, it's sort of a cottage growth industry.
2: The book makes a point of highlighting your direct correspondence and interviews with convicted terrorists. What did you gain from those experiences that added context beyond the data you gathered through more indirect sources?
0: Now, the first thing you gain is a lot of frustration. Um, the this is uh, in universities. If any of your listeners uh, or do, do research in uh, through the university, you know that you have to get human subjects approval through an institutional review board, an IRB. Um, to Traditionally, doing uh, doing uh, first primary research on criminals of any sort is a lengthy uh, process. To do it on imprisoned terrorists is is uh, outright um, torturous. Um, you have to go through IRB processes. You have to get permission from the Bureau of Prisons, the FBI, Homeland Security, CIA. If the if the inmate is for, uh, is a foreign national then you need permission from the inmate his lawyers uh, and the warden of the prison and it took us uh 2 years uh to get uh IRB permissions on the just the handful of of uh of inmates that we had direct contact with now having said that once you get this this is you you're provided with a bond, with some rich data that nobody has ever seen uh, in open sources, even the even law enforcement, you know, we 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 can we can find ourselves with people um, that FBI has investigated that we are able to find out things about because we don't pre- we don't present any sort of the of law enforcement hammer, you know, we don't, and so we, you know we're not intimidating people. We're, we're there as social scientists to try to figure out uh, what the be- cause these people to behave the way they have, and so. Through this, particularly the prison interview, uh, and uh, split those interviews up into two days, and so you know you're looking at uh, four to five hours um, per day, and so at the end of that two-day session, and these are all just one-on-one or, uh, or small, uh, small uh, places where we're doing these. Never two inmates, and, uh, and these inmates are usually accompanied by uh, a warden. Uh, because they're high-profile inmates, um, and so, but through that through that interaction, uh, again, you know, you kind of start slow with questions the inmate is comfortable in asking, and over time you develop a rapport with this inmate, and so he begins to trust you, and after he trusts you, then you move very incrementally to the larger issues of radicalization, and finally, the last place as you go is you go to the act of terrorism yourself. You simply don't walk in and boom, ask ask the guy, why'd you do it? This is stupid, right? You have to, you have to understand, be respectful of this uh, person you're interviewing. You know that this took a lot of, that he. this person was willing to risk his life, gamble, throw away his life in order to commit this act of violence. Now, to get to there, to get to that position where he wants to uh, tell you about that, Uh, demands a lot of confidence, uh, interpersonal confidence and and rapport building. And so, um, you know, this comes through letter writing at the front end of this, and then uh, speaking to the guards and counselors and people, uh, uh, I've also interviewed the family members and gone to the neighborhoods where they committed these uh, these acts of uh, terrorism. And so you know, the, you know the the layout of the land. And so by the time you get to the prison to interview these people, you know things about them. You know, uh, yeah, you might walk in and oh, say, see, you had a birthday a week ago. Well, they brighten up. So oh, this guy's taking the time to know me. Or I walk through your neighborhood and I see where your sister lives. She's still there. Everything's okay. Uh, and so this this is rapport building. So you're treating these people not as, quote, human subjects, but as actual really human beings. And so uh, the long and short of it is that, that it is very difficult, it is torture, it's time consuming, it is, is frustrating in the extreme, that's the negative part of it. The positive part of it is you, you reap a bounty that is, uh, uh, that is very unusual and is, and is very deep and uh, you know, it sort of provides the, uh, a whole new way of looking at this phenomenon of terrorism.
2: I found it interesting that you identified previous criminal activity and in particular instances of domestic violence as a strong commonality in lone wolf terrorists. What does this information tell us about these actors?
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the maybe not so much surprising, but very interesting findings. And I think uh, so definitely uh, criminal activity, uh, histories of criminal activity in general. But also, particularly the domestic violence, it's something that I'm particularly a mark. We've had many discussions also about in terms of what this means, particularly also in terms of a mark referred earlier to there being so few and particularly none in the in the post 9/11 era uh, uh, female lone wolves. What does this mean also between the link between say masculinity and violence as a means of the, in the performance of, of masculinity, for example? And so, what we found so there's a number of things so that in the post 9/11 era, particularly we saw that interpersonal conflicts of these male lone wolves with women, for example, their girlfriends or wives, uh, quite often featured as, so, as, as sort of triggering events, particularly, for example, when these women announced their intention to leave an abusive relationship, for example. Uh, uh, and that actually became points at which they either got threatened or, uh, or, 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 or assaulted. Uh, and, and, and so there were specific acts of, 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 of very serious domestic violence. The other thing we we saw in that process is that almost in some cases, uh, the home the home environment became almost sort of a training ground where these male uh, uh, lone wolves could could sort of uh, rehearse and perfect the use of violence against uh, 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 against their against their own families and almost as sort of uh, a stepping stone towards future attacks. So even in terms of the the socialization into the use of violence, right, and and, and gaining some sort of uh, confidence in, in, in the use of violence, uh, we found that sort of the home environment in, in a few of these cases, particularly in the post-911 uh, era, uh, played quite a significant role. So that, for me personally, that was, well, maybe not surprising, but quite a, quite a very, very interesting, I think, an eye-opening finding. Uh, and, and therefore, we, again, we're seeing links between this particular form of crime and other forms of, of, of criminal uh, activity and, and uh, well, illegal behaviors. So, Mark, you might want to add to that. Um, uh,
0: yeah. But, I mean, i, I admit um, that um, this is a very intriguing finding. And, I, and I've thought a lot about it. And then I, don't, I don't have a complete answer to this. The question is, why do lone wolves uh, increasingly attack women? Um, uh, there's a much more to do in that area. And they're revolving around issues of masculinity, issues, obviously chauvinistic beliefs, uh, misogyny. Uh, one of the interesting things that you find is, is that none of these guys in the post 9-11 era um, were in the military and fought in uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. We found a number of guys pre-9-11 who were World War II vets and Korea, Korea Vietnam vets, none of these guys post-9-11 uh, fought in uniform uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um Yet some of those guys were, were, you know, took high-velocity firearms and went and killed groups of women. Uh, now, there's a story in there, uh, and there's a shift in there. Uh, there's a, there's a transformation uh, going on there with regard to this particular type of criminality that is that is very interesting, very troubling. I think one of the most um, uh, harrowing stories we tell in the book is the uh, is the assassination attempt of Representative Gabrielle Giffords uh, by uh, mentally ill uh, young man, Jared, Jared, uh, Jared Loeffner, in Tucson in 2011. Um, that was a particularly brutal crime. And as Ramon was mentioning, these guys see themselves as, uh, as often historical figures. There is some chance that Gabby Giffords was on her way to a, a splendid career in politics. I mean, in, you know, the, she had a very bright future. That was snuffed out in one instant. And there's another example of how these these people are very dangerous and, you know, very brazen. Walk right up to that woman, shot her point blank in the forehead. Uh, It was horrible. Now, why a woman? Uh, There are other politicians around. Uh, You know, why her? Uh, What was it that that moved him uh, to hate this woman so much? So these 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 are part of deep psychological issues going on here. What we did, we didn't go into this looking for this. This is not a deductive process. It was all inferential. Oh, my God. You know, once we got done, we looked back at the data, we saw this. There's this pattern going on. Now, this is what true social science hopes to achieve, is not to go in, into uh, with any predetermined notions, but let the data speak to you. And, and this was one of the most compelling findings we made, this issue about women.
2: Yeah, I wanted to just say that I found that section on the on the Gabby Giffords um, assassination attempt to be just really detailed. And um, I'll note that the book has several of these kind of examples um, throughout it that provide a lot of detail and context to these different attacks and um, a lot of background that give you a real holistic overview of, of all the different pieces. Um mm-hmm. I also just wanted yeah, to touch and, upon um, that you towards the end of the book and even in other places you talk about the the FBI sting operations and the the role of those sting operations in counterterrorism efforts could you could you talk a little bit about those and what you found
0: the FBI sting operations against lone uh, typically lone Muslim males um, is the the federal government's most ambitious attempt to control this problem of lone wolf terrorism? And what this amounts to is uh, sending an undercover uh, informant. That's a redundancy. All all informants are undercover by by, by definition. But sending sending typically these are these are criminals. Uh, somebody's been caught and busted for a crime in the FBI. Uh, notices that these people have a potential to become a confidential informant. And so what they'll do is they'll flip them. You know, they'll say, all right, you know, you're going away to prison for life, or we'll make you another deal. You go out here in such and such a community and find someone who is, has a proclivity, that's the legal term, a proclivity for committing an act of terrorism. And, oh, and you begin to ensnare, you begin to encourage this person to commit an act of terrorism operating uh, uh, operating through the FBI they begin to uh, encourage these people to join a conspiracy to commit terrorism over time FBI undercover FBI agents then are added to the mix and, and, uh, and after 6 8 months what you've got is a full-blown what looks to be a a terrorist conspiracy what this is is an attempt and here is the this is the contentious term entrap and trap these people into an act of terrorism. Now, what our argument is, and when we look at the interview these guys and look at their backgrounds, they were not, they didn't have the criminal skills to commit an act of terrorism, a bombing, let's say, by themselves. They didn't have the resources, the money, the vehicles, the know-how to commit these acts of terrorism. Only when the FBI intervened and radicalized these people uh, were they able to uh, to to go down this this road uh, eventually toward a terrorist event? Now, none of them are terrorist actions because at the last minute uh, the FBI intervenes and uh, arrests this person, and it usually gets reported as is um, is supporting providing material support or attempted uh, bombing. But this is the sting. Um, you know, the FBI's used stings in uh, white-collar crime cases, uh, mafia cases, and since 9-11, they've begun to apply it more and more. Um, it happened before 9-11, too, but then since 9-11, they've, they've upped the ante, um, and they have uh, have uh, doubled on their efforts to, to try to initiate these stings in Muslim communities across the country. Um there are. When we looked, there were at least there were there was one. According to James Comey, before he left office, was that there he said there were FBI investigations going on and terrorism investigations in all 50 states. But what he was talking about, these were t- these were sting operations that were going on, and so these are multi, probably billion dollar uh, operations. Um, and their intent is not really to stop an act of terrorism, but it is to demonstrate to the public that the FBI is indeed doing something about terrorism. And so what they, these need to be spectacular tales of a, of a foiled plot. And then the media trots these people out and said, well, you know, we stopped another one. Well, they weren't really stopped. What we're arguing is that there's a better way to do this. You don't have to just, then you these guys go to prison for 30 years to life. There's a different way to do this. You don't have to encourage somebody to, to bomb other Americans. You can provide them with an off-ramp to the radicalization. Many of these guys are mentally ill, drug-addicted. We found one guy who was so mentally during this thing he actually circumcised himself on the streets of Harlem. Now there's a guy who you could probably do something different with rather than encourage him to bomb a, a, a subway. Um and there are there are other cases many that that this scenario follows these are marginalized people with drug and alcohol problems mental illness problems on the margins of society and the fbi is exploiting them for their own uh reputation and and uh and their uh, to demonstrate so that they're winning this the domestic war on terrorism these are highly controversial uh operations when you speak about and Ramon can probably confirm this. When you explain these FBI terrorism stings to uh, European audiences, they are appalled. Uh, nothing like this happens in, in in Europe. Nothing like this happens in the UK. Um, uh, the, these are these are these are a unique product of the FBI, and they have some roots back in. Uh, the legacy of J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO and uh, these uh, programs to stop dissidents during the uh, late '40s up through the mid- to to the early '70s.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, Mark. And, and just to add to that, you're absolutely right. So, for example, in the European context, uh, they recognise this idea of hey, you might have alternatives when when one of these individuals comes on your onto your radar, right? Uh, uh, you have you have. Uh, you have some choices of, of which, which path do you follow, of which the distinct operation is one. Uh, in Europe, for example, they're working uh, particularly hard also to uh, enhance the access of these individuals then to uh, uh, decent support. So say mental health care, uh, uh, etc., cetera, uh, to actually ensure uh, that this person doesn't uh, uh, follow that, that, that path, either to violence or to, to jail. Uh, and actually, uh, is is offered opportunities to uh, 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 to find you know uh, well a improve health, but also b to find meaningful opportunities in in society. So there's actually, for example, in the in the, the European Union context, uh, there are quite ongoing uh, uh, talks and 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 programs around those kind of issues. So there's the awareness indeed of hey this presents us with uh, you know uh, decisions we need to make, but I think generally the the consensus is that the, the this is not the way we want to go. We actually want to see what we can do more on the preventative side, actually preventing these individuals uh, from 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 radicalizing uh, any further, and actually uh, gaining sort of meaningful opportunities to 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 have a sense of sort of belonging and inclusion in society. So it's it's, it's quite a different approach indeed.
2: Well, thank you both. Um, I really enjoyed reading the book, and I will say while it is very rich in data and sources. It's also an extremely accessible read. Um, before we let you go, would you mind telling us what you are both working on now? Um, well, not much. Uh,
0: it, you know, I, I'm just, re- I'm basically, um, I guess in the last uh, eight months or so, have been reacting to invitations, you know, write a book, cha- wrote a book chapter on uh, um, protest music uh, and why it matters in the Trump era. You know, we were, we we're seeing... Uh, protest music is it ain't what it used to be um and uh, it's uh, but we you know we haven't seen marches like we have uh during donald trump's presidency, and so I'm asking the question in an article about you know what was what role does music protest music uh, is there is there any way like through rap you know can can we somehow replicate you know what pete Seeger or Dylan or uh, Woody Guthrie did in earlier I- eras, you know. That seems can can that does Eminem or uh, you know Chance the rare Lil Wayne, or does th- can that be expressed through uh, through rap music? Uh, that's intriguing me. It, I also done a piece on appearance and crime, appearance and and uh, terrorism. Um, and uh, I've written a, another piece on ethnography, you know, sort of the trials and tribulations of doing ethnography. And um, so that's about it.
1: Yeah, I'm working, uh, working on, a, on a few different projects. One is related to to our, uh, the end of our discussion around, uh, well, sting operation, but particularly also the mental health. So a project around uh, the role of mental health, mental illness, but also particularly the other way in the. In, in, mental health care can actually be a, a sort of a protective factor in, in radicalization or de-radicalization processes. Uh, and also a project where we look particularly at the, the point of transition from sort of a, a sympathizer to someone to take up arms uh, and so uh, uh, become uh, to, to violent extremism. And so what is it in that transition? And I think that, that builds quite naturally on, on on the work that Mike and I've done. Other than that, I'm also trying to enjoy this uh, this Achievement, it's a book I'm very proud of, and i you know, really uh, enjoyed the collaboration with Mark. So, uh, I think it's time also to just sit back and think, Oh, what a great book we've written! So, uh, uh, I think it's we, we don't often do that enough, even uh, academics. Uh, uh, we just go on to the next projects without actually celebrating uh, our little successes along the way. So, I'm actually trying to do that a little bit more at the moment. Yeah, that's the
2: point. Well, thank you both for being on the show today. Okay, thank, thank you for have. having us. The Age of Lone Wolf Terrorism by Mark Ham and Ramon Spy is available now from Columbia University Press. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.